At least what I want to be doing is inviting the audience to have feelings, you know, to feel things along with me, to be moved by the words or the sounds or the sights, to just be moved in one way or the other. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I'm really happy to have you joining me. For those of you who are brand new listeners, I'm Keith Billick. And for those of you returning listeners, I'm still Keith Billick. I don't know if you were expecting somebody else. So sorry to disappoint you, but that's why I have wonderful guests to speak with and to help make things uh, a little more interesting around here. But at any rate, it's March. Happy March. Spring is about to be sprung, I guess is what we would say. And it also means that with every new month, there is another chance to join me and your fellow Picky Fingers listeners for the VIP Very Important Picker Lounge video meetup. So be sure to mark your calendars for Saturday, March 26th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That is this month's VIP Lounge meetup. It's great fun. Every month we hop on a video call to chat about banjos and banjo playing and banjo players and banjo music. You know, all, all of the all of the topics. Uh, and all you need to do to get your meeting code for that VIP lounge is to head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and sign up to be a supporter of the show for which I am eternally grateful and you get to join the VIP lounge and there's all sorts of other bonuses for signing up there, which uh, which you can read about. Another bonus is to get your personal shout out. And today our very special Patreon customer of the show is Ron Bellis. Ron, thank you so much for signing up on Patreon and doing your part to support the show. I really appreciate it and could not do it without you. So once again, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Otherwise, just make sure you keep in touch. I am picky underscore fingers on Instagram. If you are a Twitterer, a, uh, a tweeter, if you are one who, who tweets, I am at Banjo Podcast on Twitter, or just email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. featured guest is Evie Layden. Evie is not only an expert claw hammer banjo player, she's also a singer, songwriter, percussive dancer, choreographer, square dance caller, and just all around brilliant performer. And that's probably my favorite portion of this interview. There's there's all the customary banjo talk, of course, but the thing that really fascinates me about her is just her ability to command attention and engage an audience and we talk a lot about that evie is best known for her work with the percussive dance ensemble rhythm and shoes the old time band the stairwell sisters and now she leads her own evie laden band 
So she has a wide variety of performing experience, and so I can't wait for you to hear all about those things. Here it is. Give a warm picky fingers welcome to Evie Layden. Laden, and I live in Oakland, California, and I'm a little loath to say I'm from California, but mm. California has been very good to me. Okay. I grew up on the East Coast. I always say the mid-Atlantic seaboard because we moved around a lot uh, between New York City and Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And then I was in the Midwest for a piece before moving out to California. And then I've been touring a lot, you know, for the entirety of my career. So... I've been all around this world, you're baby kind of mine. from a little bit of everywhere. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine once said, Evie, you're conveniently from wherever anyone else is from. <laughs> yeah, a good point of connection. <laughs> or I've been there, you know, or know people there, or I've explored the area, so. Well, wel welcome back to the Midwest. Thank you. Since you're from here, yeah. ob obviously. <laughs> what about the banjo part? How did you get to be this uh, touring person who is uh, so well-traveled? Well, my banjo story goes that, you know, my lore is that my dad fell in love with old-time string band music, with folk music, but specifically mostly old-time string band music in the 50s in New York City. He went to Hootenanny at Carnegie Hall, oh, cool. went home, took all of his original rock and roll 45s and threw them out. <laughs> <laughs> Along with his baseball cards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. And my inheritance. <laughs> but he just fell in love with music and that became uh, what he wanted to do. Never played, never wanted to, could stand being bad enough to get good. So he never played, but he's an avid music appreciator mm -hmm. and just always took my sister and I to parties and festivals. And so it was early days of folk revival and so, uh, and my mom was an international folk dance teacher, and they oh, wow. they split up pretty early on. She moved back to New York City, but so it was all you know creative life in a way. My dad had a regular job, but you know just having that emphasis on getting together with people um, to play music and dance. He loved to social dance, and then he opened our house to people traveling through, and that's really oh, okay how the story goes because. Um, John Cohen was staying with us, mm -hmm. and I can picture him sitting on the couch saying, you girls should play the banjo. And apparently he took us to get our first banjo. Was that something that you had considered doing before that point? I was eight. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't really thinking that much about what I was supposed to do or wanted to do. Attention span of a goldfish, approximately. <laughs> well, that's great. So somehow you you took to it, though, it sounds like. Well, it was just like what we did, you know, and it was what the people around me were doing. Mm -hmm. Not the people immediately around me in suburban New Jersey or in inner city Baltimore, but, right. you know, in our, our wider social scene. And I'm kind of, I'm very much between generations. I'm full on Gen X. And so mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of kids around. My dad was older than the hippies that were, you know, really getting into it. And we, like a big influence was the Green Grass Cloggers. They stayed with us for a couple of weeks. And my sister and I really took to the dancing. And that was kind of the first thing, like starting with clogging when I was about five. And my sister and I made up routines. And then we would, the Green Grass Cloggers would throw us up on stage to do like a little tweener thing in their festival set. Oh, that's great. And my mom made us little clogging outfits. And so the banjo just followed, followed that. I think I find it kind of surprising that you stuck with it, given that most kids go through at least somewhat of a rebellious 
phase that might even last their whole life of not wanting to be like their parents, but it seemed like you really embraced that social aspect that that was all around you. I wonder if partly because my dad didn't play, um, but all of his cool friends did. Um, So it was just, we were exposed to it all the time. And then I will say that like dancing was definitely my first love. That was like what I pursued. And I just played banjo for fun and in jam sessions, you know, but more often you'd see me on the dance board. Right. And maybe we're skipping ahead a bit too much, but then the, that, obviously raises the question of what effect do you think having at least somewhat of a background in dance had when you were learning banjo? Do you feel like that impacted it? I feel like it's impacted the my style of playing. Hmm. Um, that and also the fact that most of my experience playing was either in jams or in square dances. So the really heavy on the rhythm side. Mm-hmm. And both from the dancing, you know, I really approach the instrument as a mix of melody, harmony, and rhythm because you want to be heard and you want to provide a certain service to the music as a banjo player. So I didn't spend a lot of time in my room, you know, working on tunes and figuring out a lot of melodic stuff. It's just not in the way I play. Okay. And in fact, I didn't even really understand the banjo neck like chord-wise until relatively recently. Huh. And this is where my claw hammer ignorance is going to come in, come into play so I'll I'll yes. lean on you for for some of this but I'm I'm curious to know then if you if you're describing your own playing style as particularly rhythmic which which I totally agree I hear that in your playing from a hands-on approach what do you think are some things that can help people play more rhythmically if that's something that they're looking to do ooh uh, that's a good question what will help people play more rhythmically? I mean, I think people get too bogged down in the details of a tune mm-hmm. and knowing exactly how it goes. And this, my experience translates into how I teach a lot. I had a funny interchange on social media recently where I just, you know, liked a former student's banjo post. Mm-hmm. And and she wrote me and she said, I've been studying with Adam Hurt, uh-huh. you know, since she moved away and whatever. And, and I said, uh, I said, well, he's a lot more methodological than I am, isn't he? And she said, he is. He's really specific. But sometimes your voice comes into my head and says, just play music. Oh, cool. And through my years of teaching, especially the group classes I teach through the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley, mm-hmm. I've evolved and come to understand uh, the way that I lead people into it, I will give people, you know, some specific things and some tablature. But I, I, I've realized that the way I play grew from a response to the fiddle, and that's a lot of what the banjo can be. It's one of the roles of the banjo, and I would listen to the fiddle and respond to it. And in fact, people say like, "What banjo record should I listen to?" And I was like. I don't ever listen to banjo music. Like I listen to the fiddle. And funny enough, Adam Hurt and I had that same conversation at a banjo camp once. He's like, yeah, I don't listen to banjo music either. How curious. I, I guess I'm looking for a, a way to trick you into to demonstrating this. And I know you I know it's silly to ask you to demonstrate a style that you don't play, but in terms of playing that fiddle style that you that you would what's an example of what that even sounds like yeah i mean so one of the things that made me think of about getting students to play more rhythmically is like i will you know everybody starts with this bum ditty right 
And everyone starts like a full brush like that. And I say, okay, how about if you just, just do your brush just on the top strings? Or you do it just on the first string, because a lot of round pick style is like, not a lot of brushing mm-hmm. can be more melodic in this way, just single string kind of stuff. And then introducing something that's a little more percussive. And so just really, um, and then I have people, you know, play the, uh, like, play against the fifth string, play the fifth string really loud, but keep your lead note the same. Now play it really quiet, but without your lead note getting quiet. So like that you kind of develop some control over what you want to hear from the fifth string, from your downstroke. And I feel like in my original songwriting, but then also, you know, backing up fiddle players, they need a certain drive from the banjo. And, you know, sometimes it can be this real, like, kind of a, a wash of rhythmic sound, you know. And right. I play some tunes like that to, you know, uh, support my singing. But then, or I might open it up to... to something that's much more delicate and open. And then of course drop thumbing on that one. Oh yeah. yeah. And and there's a range of syncopations then. And then of course there's the like, you know, again everyone starts with the bum ditty and then you learn how to put the next or the fill in, you know, the where the rest is in the bum ditty, you know, with slides and pull-offs and hammer-ons and stuff and then drop thumbs. And then once you have the ability to make all these sounds, then you have to figure out how to take them away, you know, so that you create oh. different kinds of syncopations. Yeah, right. And so you're you're going through all these really interesting techniques and, and talking about how you can use them. You all, you also mentioned something about I, I forget how you put it. You said don't don't try too hard hard to learn the tune exactly. Just try to to capture the yeah the rhythmic. So aspect of it. So I struggle with teaching my students. Here is how the tune goes, because there's every banjo player is going to interpret the tune differently, and especially if your goal is to play with other people, you want to be able to respond to what's going on around you and adjust. Mm -hmm. So you know, so many students they just want a way to play it, and then they play it that way. And the students who have stuck with me, which have been, you know, hundreds at this point, if not thousands of students at this point, have really appreciated the way that I teach. Not only only does it encourage them to understand the instrument, but mostly to develop their ear. It's an oral tradition. Hmm. It's not written down. Tablature is, it's a helpful tool at first, but it can really become a crutch. Like, it's nice to remind you of things or to you know, show you specific techniques that you sort of aren't understanding quite. If you're a real visual learner, you know, it can be helpful. But, um, you know, I had a student come to me with a big book of tablature and I was like, oh, play something for me so I know kind of where you're at. And she would play a tune through once and then move on to the next tune. And I was like fascinated by this approach, you know, and there's obviously there's so many different ways of playing and enjoying playing. You know, right. some people just want to play by themselves and just want to play different tunes. But I keep trying to, I feel like a big part of my mission is to facilitate community engagement, to uh-huh. facilitate that experience that 
you know, you don't often have in a capitalist society of doing things for pleasure and not in a consumerist way, but in a participatory way. And so getting people comfortable playing with other people, playing in jam sessions, going to dances, doing things that are really sort of engaging in that communal health uh, thing that, you know, that traditional music and dance brings. Yeah, right. But in the context of you teaching a lesson, how how are you able to convey a sense of community through perhaps a one-on-one lesson? Is that a big part of the lesson is maybe you two jamming together or how does that come through in, in that context? Well, in, I mean, I realize I didn't finish answering the previous question, but like the, in the, in a one-on-one. <laughs> I hope you remember what the previous question <laughs> yeah. was because I don't think I do. In a one-on-one lesson, I don't actually teach very many one-on-one lessons. I okay. filter most people either to my group classes or to Peghead Nation, to that right. subscription. But in my one-on-one classes, I often will then pick up the guitar or the fiddle, which really throws people because they're mm-hmm. like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep playing the tune. And eventually their ear starts to hear the connection between what they were learning on the banjo and then what they're listening to and like yeah. what the connection is. And then the previous question I was talking about, like in terms of how I teach, I like I just don't give people necessarily, here's how you play the tune. I'll yeah. say, you could do this. You could do that. You can get this note open. You can get this note with a slide. You can get a, oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong, a different tuning. You can get, <laughs> yeah. there it is. You can get, um, you know, you can do a drop thumb or you can do a, a do pull-offs. You can, you can achieve the same thing in different ways. And because the fiddle has so much fluidity with the, with the bow, and the banjo is so connected to all of these African-rooted syncopations. I just try to get people comfortable with moving around and not just playing the same thing the same way every time. So, for example, I choose a lot of tunes with words because I have students use their voices a lot. And I say, like, don't think of it as singing. Think of it as, like, using your voice because everyone feels <laughs> like they can't sing. But the reality is, like, I feel like singing the tones as you learn it or singing the words to a song just helps develop your ear, connecting to your instrument. And so, you know, play a time through the song. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Play just the chords and sing the melody. Say, darling, say. And then when you're not playing, then play the melody. Right. So that they can really yeah, cool. go back and forth. But it's all of these techniques to get people more flexible with what they're doing and then also to really develop their ear. And like I said, students who have stuck with me, it, they had a, sometimes had a really hard time weaning off of tab or or just sort of felt a little unmoored at first, yeah. but then felt so much more capable later on. I, I, I'm not a prolific teacher, but I've taught enough lessons to know how intimidating that can be for a lot of people, not only to get off of tab, but to then be presented with what you said, different options to play things that they're yeah. hearing. Just tell me what to do. Right, right. <laughs> but no, if, if you can make it through and, and tough it out, some of those early stages of learning, you're a much more complete mm-hmm. uh, musician, really, to, to be able to do that, I think. But I also think that there's an entry point for any level. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like I'll, if I'm in a banjo workshop with a, well, they're all mixed level, you know, for yeah. that ra- matter. Even if it's, you know, an intermediate class, people are still mixed level, especially how they process information. That, um, you know, somebody's just here and I'm like, you just play the chord changes. 
sing the song, you know, sing the tune as you go, but just like play the chord changes. I was like, you are learning as much, you know, as if you were, you know, actually playing all the parts of the tune. You know, you get it in your ear. The traditional way of passing on music, you know, the kids are at the knee of the people playing and they grow up listening to it. Then someone just puts an instrument in their hands and you see this all over the world, you know? Right. And I just feel like we have divorced ourselves from the continuum in the process of learning music. And I really try to bring people back into a less linear and more circular way of thinking about the music. Hey folks, there has never been a better time to learn banjo online through video lessons. And the best game in town is Peghead Nation, one of our sponsors. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you'll be able to learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction with some of these courses. Check it out. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward Style Banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, no matter what course you select, they're all going to come with high-quality, multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation, plenty of tab, play-along tracks, and tunes and songs for you to learn. Perhaps best of all, if you join any of these Peghead Nation video courses now, you'll get your first month free just for being a Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast listener. So just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. Another sponsor of the show is GHS Strings. We banjo players know that a banjo is only as good as the quality of strings that you put on it, and GHS has a long track record of providing the top quality in banjo strings to some of the top industry professionals such as Bela Fleck, J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, Todd Taylor, and me. I'm a GHS user, so check them out at ghsstrings.com. Now, if you ask me where I go to purchase my GHS strings, that answer is simple. It's the same place that I go for all of my banjo, guitar, and any other stringed instrument needs. It's Elderly Instruments here in Lansing, Michigan. They've been family-owned since 1972, and it's the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage instruments and all the accessories and strings that you might need. Now, if you aren't close enough to Lansing, Michigan to visit them in person, you can also see their entire inventory online at elderly.com or feel free to give them a call to speak to a knowledgeable salesperson at 517-372-7880 or once again, see what they have at elderly.com. I wanted to talk more about maybe your mom's influence because you have this rhythmic style and you kind of cut your teeth playing at the square dances you said so that's a particular rhythm that's suited to that style of playing but if you started as a dancer and and your mother was an international dance international folk dance teacher folk yeah. dance teacher yeah i'm so a lot of folk dances are defined by the rhythm that you use when you perform that dance right i'm wondering if you have explored any of that 
in your playing, or did you ever have any playing situations for different types of dances other than square dances? Not so much other kinds of dances on the banjo. And again, it was like some square dances, but then also just jam sessions and playing Mm -hmm. for fun. But I do feel like, you know, clogging and percussive dance and like, it started off clogging, but then, you know, my first career really, I became a professional as a dancer with the company Rhythm and Shoes. Right. And so, and it was a very, you know, very precise, very professional, exacting company. And so you, you know, you get very specific with your rhythmic exploration. And before that, something that's been really seminal is when I was 16, um, Stefan Senders, who's a banjo player from Ithaca, New York, and played the Wildcats and the Chicken Chokers and other okay. now old school uh, sort of uh, open old time bands. Anyway, he was he did ethnomusicology research in Ghana, and he came to a Shokan fiddle and dance that we went to every mm-hmm. year growing up. Again, some of the very few kids there okay. at the time, and. He taught these Ghanaian rhythms, and this light bulb went off for me. And this is a big part of my origin story that's kind of out there because this light bulb went off that this is so like in the in the music and the dance, these rhythms are so foundational. They're like buried inside the syncopations of old time fiddle, you know, in a way that distinguishes it from Celtic fiddle. Mm -hmm. You know, like the tunes are the same, but the rhythms are different. The approach is different. The you know harmonic systems are a little different, and um, so I kind of dove full on into that in college into, I created my own major at Brown University called African Studies and Dance. I had a great dance teacher who really mixed West African and contemporary dance. It was the first time I really explored dance in an official way. I didn't, yeah. I never took, you know, jazz, modern ballet studio dance at all growing up. It was all social and informal couple dancing and then learning different um, percussive dance styles, French, Canadian, some English, some Irish, all that kind of stuff. So I had all these, this rhythmic training, but uh, studying African music is like so much more overtly polyrhythmic Mm -hmm. and coming to understand even better, not only that, but then also I just studied in every department, everything connected with uh, the continent and um, and the history and the history of enslavement and then what happened in this country. And it's really like, this has been a big part of my mission too, is that this is America's first or North America or this country's first syncretic music is this mix of white, black, and brown in the American South. And then years later come to realize like everywhere around, you know, up and down North and South America is this mix of where the black people were taken from, what brown people were there and where the white people came from, from Spain or from England or whatever. Yeah, France or whatever. Like yeah. really created different styles of music. So you look at what happened in Brazil, you know, you think, oh, Brazilian music is so, you know, old and traditional. It's the same history. I'm not exactly <laughs> the same, but, you know, it was like Spain and Congo as opposed to, you know, like uh, Ghana and England, you know, yeah. like, so... There's it a lot in all there. these different combinations. Yeah. Right. But oh, cool. all of that syn- syncretism is what created, you know, in the American South is what created this, quote, traditional music. And then all these things came out of that. 
I don't know if you've ever seen the the video Talking Feet that Mike Seeger and Ruth Pershing put out years ago. It's a Southern no. Appalachian solo flatfoot styles. Okay. And it shows both white and black folks. And when the black folks, you really see in their style, like the birth of tap dance. Just in that, they call it buck dancing what they're doing, but they're doing some things that you would think of from clogging, but the syncopations were moving more, you know, all these things were happening simultaneously. Wow. And so we're moving more towards, you know, swinging it and what we what we hear more in tap dance and jazz. Uh-huh. So I I just I love that history. I love understanding some of these connections over time because, you know, like the image of Appalachian music in this country is very Anglo because of a very racist history. And then even stereotyped as being very hillbilly and backwards or whatever. And so it's it's interesting to just sort of illuminate all the influences yeah. and the roots, and that's just really, that, right? Yeah, and sort of that the academic study part of it really grabbed me for a while. And it's just exciting to to hear how it when the when the sausage comes out of the grinder, it's fun to see what parts yeah, you what can it tastes you like. Can, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when and why and how did you, or maybe maybe did you make a decision at some point to to focus on music? as a career was that was that a conscious decision and and what led you to it if so well i mean i i've always been writing songs i think i was hesitant to admit it because growing up around so much traditional music not like people weren't writing songs but i was just shy about that aspect of it yeah. and also about my musicianship because i had developed much more of the dance side of things and I was in rhythm and shoes for most of my 20s and really developed my professionalism and everything. And the last project I did with them was a collaboration with Keith Terry and Cross Pulse mm-hmm. when Keith and I fell in love and I ended up moving to California instead of to Chicago and very easily immediately was connected to a much more multicultural scene, but then fell in with the old time and trad music communities there. And Dance-wise, there just wasn't what I did out there. There weren't people doing it. And I don't know if you know this, but like, you know, there there is a tap dance scene. The tap dance scene is a, is a lot more uh, competitive than communal. And it can be both, but I just wasn't good enough. And that wasn't like I'm very community and like ensemble oriented, she right. says now on a solo tour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um Within a couple months, I was just, uh, I just kind of ended up in an all-gal old-time string band. And so I feel like my musicianship really grew in that group, the Stairwell Sisters. The dancing took a little bit of a backseat, it sounds like. Yeah, it was somewhat of a backseat, but also, you know, to me, they're just the same, you know? Like, I always dance in the show, 
Um, I started calling square dances because there were all these new old-time musicians who wanted to play faster than the contra dance would allow, so <laughs> or play crooked tunes or whatever. Yeah. So I got my mom's old, you know, square dance books from the fifties and sixties, and started learning how to call square dances. <laughs> and you know, also uh, my partner Keith is most known for body music, body percussion, and his whole thing is he's trained as a jazz drummer, and then he put all of his rhythms on, and he did a lot of study with world music uh, systems. And he expressed it all through body music, body percussion. And so I was also doing that. And when he, I was playing with the Stairwell Sisters, but he brought me out to be part of this group, Cross Pulse, which is a multicultural quintet where everyone collaborates on each other's traditions. So hmm. it was a, you know, like you think you're done with something in your life, and then years later it cycles back and right. it's exciting. So, I mean, I'll make this a short part of the story, but. I did all this study in Africa, and I spent a lot of time in Nigeria. I had a Fulbright to study there. And then I came back to the States, and I'm white. And diving into the African music and dance scenes in America was, it wasn't as, you know, I knew I was never going to be totally accepted because the African Americans felt, as they rightly should, you know, a certain kind of ownership to that environment. And I just was insecure enough to really want to feel more deeply connected uh-huh. with uh, what I was doing. And anyway, so with Rhythm and Shoes, I was kind of diving back into the in, into the more traditional American Getting stuff. Getting to do that again, yeah. But then collab- you know, moving out to California, here I was able to you know, reconnect all this stuff again. So everyone's arts and cross pulse comes from the african diaspora and so i've got them square dancing on a banjo tune i'm playing banjo on a afro-cuban song and we're all mixing it up and it's all music and dance So you you mentioned that when you moved out to the Bay Area, you had a renewed focus on your musicianship. So that, I guess that steers us back to your banjo playing. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, it, are you able to maybe point out any important elements of your style or, or like playing skills that you find yourself relying upon frequently? I mean, I guess I started developing more in a band situation. So we started doing more arrangements of things. Mm-hmm. And there was a fiddle in the band. So, you know, I could rock out and be in the background just playing, really supporting on the banjo. Uh-huh. We also had a dobro in the band. Lisa Berman's a great old-time dobro player. Oh, cool. And so it was just, you know, the mix of sounds was a little, a little more contemporary, I guess. But... Everybody brought material to the band, and that was the first time I started bringing some original songs. And I just felt I just really grew as a musician. Hmm. And 
I guess like, you know, in terms of crafting a song, a performance song, like like the song that I recorded with them and then reworked in my own band a decade later, like starts off with this style like... A real shushy sound. Come down to the door of my home. Come down to the door of my home. Having filled like different, exploring different sounds okay. of how it wasn't just totally straight up, and also because there are other lead instruments playing playing a high high version, playing a low version. And then when I brought it to my band later, it became a mashup with, which I tend to do a lot, is taking an original song and then the instrumental part is, is a tune. Lost Girl. Oh, right. Yeah, I love doing that too. And so going from like this, you know, real rhythmic shushy sound to, you know... Real more specific, more precise kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So, especially with maybe a somewhat of a unique blend of instruments, do you find yourself having to adjust how you play, for example, with a dobro player as opposed to yeah, when you don't have a dobro player? Are you are are you able to pinpoint what that might be? I know a lot of this is. It's just, just you know, staying out each again, like just being being more rhythmic, playing more low, or you know, finding like a you know, just finding like a groove that's going to support what's going on. I mean, this is also we're a performance band, and old time music, you know, is not like the most performative kind of music, and it can be, you know, just real straightforward tunes are really great, but it's it's music for dancing, yeah. and so. You know, it should make you want to dance. But because we were a performance band, like I would dance some and we would sing and we would switch around instruments and who was singing lead. And and so in getting into arrangements, you know, and more detailed arrangements, it definitely had me look at how I play and making things more interesting than just, you know, my training of just play the tune. Right. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the fact that it's all... A performance, because something that I, I find myself really admiring about your performances and and about you as a performer is just. Uh, so I think I made you laugh last time we got together. I referred to you as the straw that stirs the drink, because <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> okay, it was the last time at, at Great Lakes, but so I don't know if you can infer what I mean by that. But that you know, even in a situation where you might be on stage with a, a lot of accomplished musicians you have a way of just taking over the presentation and get, getting everyone I hope that's on a board. good thing. It is a good thing. I don't mean it in an aggressive uh way. Yeah. No, I just really dig your stage presence and and the way that you engage with an audience and I'm wondering where you think you might have learned that from or are you able to Tell people how you do that because it's it's definitely a skill that not very many people honestly have. i think I think some of that comes from being a professional dancer because mm. you are just out there with just your body uh-huh, and you know we were a percussive dance company, so you're doing a lot it's you know oriented around the sounds coming from your feet, but 
we did a lot of creative choreography that Sharon Leahy choreographed and was very expansive in her way of thinking about it. And so I learned so much just about stage presence, you know, being in front of people and where to look and how to engage. And it's like, if your face is boring, you're boring. And especially as a percussive dancer, I remember years ago, someone, someone said, you know, most people are looking at your face. They're not looking at your feet. So you're thinking about your feet. And I actually noticed recently I was looking at a video of of my band playing and I could tell that I was just listening so hard to the band that my face was stupid, you know, like, so, <laughs> so as a performer, it's like, you got to, you have to think about those things if you want to really stay engaging. I mean, you don't have to, you know, you can really just express it through the music, but I don't know. There's a part of me that just feels like you want to be bringing people in you know, you want to be inviting people into the situation and not feel like that there's some wall between you. And then uh, when I was in Rhythm and Shoes, I also was a DJ on uh, community radio, WFHB in oh, Bloomington, okay. which you get really used to talking to nobody. You yeah. know, you got to be engaging. Being a podcaster can be kind of like that too. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you got to be engaging and have a nice voice and, yeah. you know, no dead air and all of that. I Almost to a a fault, I think, right. that uh, I fill a lot of space. Sorry. <laughs> no, at, at least I get to edit out all my awkward pauses. You, you, you didn't have that luxury. I'm sure, I'm sure you would. Not then. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think a corollary to they're not looking at your feet could be they're not looking at your hands on the banjo or your finger picks or whatever, whatever I might be concentrating on at that moment? I mean... Definitely, because, you know, we got off stage recently and everyone in the band, we were sort of nervous because it was the first, you know, real big performance we'd done post-COVID. And performance is a muscle, you know, like if you, and you can't, you can't practice performing in front of people. You can only do it in front of people. And yeah. there's this interchange that happens that's beautiful. It's the whole reason why I do it is like to, you, you, bring people into collective experience. It seems to be a theme in what I do. And um, so we were a bit nervous and we all felt kind of sloppy and we're a little down about our performance. And then I look at the video and you don't notice any of that stuff. Like I don't, even looking at the places where I quote messed up. Right. It does. It's not what comes across. And I remind people of that all the time is that like, it's, you know, especially if you're if you're competent, if you're good at what you do, you know, mistakes make you human. But like nobody's really noticing is that it's like as detailed as you are necessarily. Yeah. I've had the opinion that a lot of being a professional musician has to do with maybe not where you are at your peak, but maybe where you are at your floor. If you can still deliver like a pretty, That's pretty decent good. performance, like on your worst day when you're sick and mm-hmm. what whatever like yeah. that that makes you pretty good <laughs> at your job <laughs> i think so it seems like you know you you learned a bit of that audience interaction from your dance instructor who gave you that advice that definitely suggests that it's something that can be worked on and maybe isn't just a natural skill that some charismatic people have and others don't. I mean, some people do, but like as a dancer, you're definitely more conscious of your physical presence in space, you yeah. know, and maybe more comfortable being a physical person in the world. A lot of musicians are really not aware of their physicality mm-hmm. at all. I, I'm probably one of them. I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not a 
front person at all. I am totally happy to just be off on the side in the shadows and be playing as well as I can. But yeah, I don't I don't need to be the spotlight. But I guess I guess a lot of the reason I'm asking you this stuff is is for my myself. That is a, a weak point. So are you able to you know, you, you said um, people are looking at your face and if you look boring, then you're going to be, or if you look bored, then you're going to be boring to them. Is that what you said? I mean, unless you're super virtuosic, which I am not. Like, I, uh-huh. I don't think of myself as a virtuoso on this instrument or on any instrument uh-huh. or on anything in particular, but I, I hope I have enough character in what I'm doing. <laughs> I think and that's <laughs> your virtuosity is, is the uh-huh. collection of all of your mm-hmm. skills and the, the presentation. Well, yeah, yeah. Are are there any other specifics that come to mind in terms of how to be that, how to have that good presentation and good rapport with with a crowd and a, and a not boring performer? I think, again, like I come back to like engaging people in collective experience, like so that the idea is that you're not alienating your audience by being so much better than them. Hmm. You know, everyone has enough problems thinking that they're not good enough <laughs> one way or the other that I just feel like I feel like it's so you know the the more I go on in my career and especially what I see happening in in our country and in the world I just feel like people are lonely and they don't have those communal experiences we've been you know freedom quote freedom often is people divorcing themselves from a deep culture and a deep culture can be stifling but it can also be grounding. So I hope, you know, in all cultures everywhere have music and dance traditions because it's what people do. You get, you're moving a pulse, you're feeling this common nonverbal kind of communication and it really serves a psychic function. You know, it serves a function in your brain, um, which was never more clear to me than during COVID how much I need to get out of my quote, thinking brain and into just my experiencing brain, which social brain can happen in nature. But like when I'm following a fiddle tune on the banjo, it's in the, I am in the moment. And I guess I'll also say something that I apparently like chemically need about performance is performance. You're hundred percent present. If you think about other things, you're going to mess up. You're not there. And the things you do, they're gone as soon as you do them. You know, you can't go back and correct them, you know, or you can stop and start over, whatever it is you're comfortable (laughs) doing. But like, you know, you are fully present. And what you're doing is you're, at least what I want to be doing is inviting the audience to have feelings, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, to feel things along with me, to be moved by the words or the sounds or the sights, to just be moved in one way or the other. Are you able to point out some even more specifics of how you do that, how you get them involved? Is this by banter between songs, the way you you talk about music? Is it about eye contact? Is it about like... Yeah, I think it's, you know, being really present on stage, Hmm. looking into the... There's this skill of looking into the audience without actually seeing anybody, you know, Uh that... I don't know. I think that comes from playing big concert halls where it's totally black 
out there and the lights are in your eyes, but there's a way of looking so that it looks like you're looking right at people. And uh-huh. I had a lot of practice doing that. Um, is it just over their heads? Yeah. Is that, is that what you do? It's sort of like the horizon or right. like, or even just like looking into the middle of the crowd where you imagine the middle of the crowd to be. Mm-hmm. And some people get really turned off by not being able to see the audience, but I just sort of like envision the people there, you know? Yeah. And some of it is definitely banter not taking myself too seriously. And I also just feel like the mix of mu- of music and dance just like I don't know, just as it's a it's multifaceted and it just kind of something we've noticed like in producing the International Body Music Festival. Mm-hmm. This is something that's it's really hard to convey in words, to write in grants, to to put into publicity, but that by doing body percussion, things that you know, when you're just using your body and even without instruments, everybody has a body. And there's this really visceral, like, heart connection that happens that we've heard feedback from the audience time and time again of, like, how connected they feel because we're just, you know, using this instrument. And actually, I saw a great, I read a great um, article uh, referencing David Byrne's American Utopia, mm-hmm. how he was aiming for that experience of having everybody uh, untethered by cables. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, it's a pretty beautiful work I, of choreography and musicianship. I'm a big David Byrne fan, and it's a crime that I have not seen it because I've had it recommended to me just too many times to to yeah. count. But I'm I'm a fan of his, and I'm familiar with like what the yeah the, the concept. concept right right. But so in an interview, I don't. I think it was uh, the two dancers, the choreographers, who um, were talking about the kinds of movements they wanted to make, and it is definitely about connecting with an audience, about being somewhat pedestrian. You know, things that feel very approachable. And I don't know. I just i I want to be that. I want to be approachable, and for people to feel like that this is a part of them too. It's not separate. Well, you do it. You're the straw that stirs the drink. <laughs> the straw that stirs you, you, the you drink. You already heard that, so that that's I'm on record with that one. Well, that's great. Let's shift to your instruments. You said this is a, a newer banjo, but is this your what you would consider like the primary instrument that you use for for performing? Ah, Maybe. So, I played the same one banjo for 25 years, uh-huh. and it was a mutt that I bought off my brother-in-law went for 150 bucks. All right. That was got your money's worth out of that. that it seems definitely, like I had finally figured out that it was a Slingerland pot, and the neck was made by Mike Defoche, who was a somewhat elusive character who played a lot with Clyde Davenport, and uh, he unfortunately passed away a little too young. But I was able to be in touch with him um, by letter uh, several years ago because he doesn't use the internet. Or didn't yeah. and analog emails, yeah, right. And he, I sent him a record and I said, What can you tell me about this? And I didn't even know that he had made the neck be- until the dowel broke, it splintered when I was on tour in Cape Breton Island one time, and there was a stamp on the inside. So I thought it was a no name banjo forever. And then his stamp was on the inside, no internet presence. It's a longer story. It's out so, there on so the internet. So you had already been in touch with him, just no, no, no. unrelated to this. Or no. it's, it's only after that that you saw after him. After I out. saw his okay. stamp, and I saw it, I actually had to first sleuth out who he even was because uh-huh. he wasn't on the internet. No internet, right? Um, and his sister actually got in touch. Was like, I think that's my brother. That because we just put it out on the internet. Who is this? this? Is before you know Facebook and all that. And um, 
There was internet before Facebook. But <laughs> <laughs> I think I remember. Um, anyway, so this banjo is like, it just had a, has a great sound. Not had, it has a great sound. Uh-huh. It also, you know, Clawhammer players really like higher action. It just, in the style of playing, because you've just got fingernail, or in my case, fake fingernail mm-hmm. on... Uh, you know, on the strings with no other, uh, you know, no metal picks or whatever. And then you also want as open of a sound as possible, you know. So clomber players, at least in the time that I was seeing most people playing, and a lot of that was in around Round Peak area, North Carolina, Virginia, and at the festivals and stuff, the way most claw hammers were playing, players were playing, really, you know, used the open sound so much. So you don't want to do, you know, massive closed chords that really like tamp it down, right? So the high action sort of gives you a great sound like that. So in the last few years, I have been wanting to explore the neck more to really understand the muse, you know, the full range of the instrument. Um, in a different kind of way. And so I started uh, learning and teaching. You stay one step ahead of your students. Like, right. how, <laughs> you know, just all the positions and how they're related and, you know, what bluegrass players take for granted because that's how you play uh-huh. is learning all these four-fingered closed chords. And bluegrass banjos tend to have lower action and the strings are a little closer together. So they're set up differently. Sure. And so I think that that's partly why the scoop evolved was so that you can still get the low action up the neck, but the high action over where you play. Where you need to, yeah. Yeah. So um, the pandemic sent me into my first like geek out over my instruments. I was like, all right, I can't be out there playing. Let me, let me figure (laughs) out, let me see if there's another instrument. So I started shopping around. Uh And as you probably know, unlike about any other instrument, there are so many variables on a banjo mm-hmm. as to, and I really dove into that. Like I really was uninterested in any of that stuff beforehand because I just had my instrument. I loved it. I didn't care. It's a black hole though. It'll oh suck my you in. Goodness. <laughs> like I finally understand why people have so many different instruments. And I'd I'd had other instruments, but I just never played them. I always played mine. Yeah. But um I also early in the pandemic, uh, partly because I was practicing a lot, got a shoulder injury mm. that really took me down. But I was like, okay, well, I need to not have such high action if I'm going to be fretting up the neck because it's just it's stressing my joints, et cetera. So maybe it's time to look for a scoop neck banjo. I wanted right. something that sounded a little different, and I dove into the black hole. And you found something. What is it? I did. So this um, this banjo I've got, it's its first uh, outing into the world, and it's a Will Cedars oh, yeah. uh, from Vermont. He actually had sent me, I thought I wanted a 12-inch pot, but and I kind of landed on a Dobson as for a different kind of sound, Dobson tone ring. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize his Dobson, he puts his Dobson tone ring on top of a rolled brass ring. So mm-hmm. a lot of the Dobsons are just, you know, the Dobson donut tone ring on wood. Right. And that has a certain sound. And I actually bought a Rickard. Some people say Rickard, some say Ricard. I've heard Rickard from some fairly reliable... Okay sources. So I, I'm going with that. I used to say Ricard too, but yeah. I've, I've switched. So um, I went down, Griffin Strings is my local music store that will have a number of different banjos. Mm-hmm. So I went down there and not, either of the banjos didn't really sound that, like all the ones I tried that they had in stock. And it was pandemic. So like 
everyone sold out of banjos, but they had a bunch there mm. and some more coming. And and uh, the record was the first one that had like a really different kind of great Zizzy Dobson sound that I really, really loved. Yeah. How would you, uh, just to interrupt you, because I, I don't know even for myself, how would you characterize the Dobson sound? What what are what are the attributes of that? Um, <laughs> well, there's so many other variables that even affect what that is. How big sure. the pot is and where the bridge is and how big the tailpiece yeah. is and all of the, what, what the head is. And, you know, it's it's amazing. Yeah. But the Dobson sound like it's a it's a donut shape and it it's like it uh it's a ziz is all I can like it's okay. it really has like a uh, like a little more of a buzz to it than being super like pinpointed. Okay. Um, so whereas like a white lady is it's a bit brighter mm-hmm. and attacky, maybe yes. this is less so. Is is that fair? Can be, yeah. Okay. I feel like the sound is a little wider. Okay. You know, um, of of how you strike it. And so most of them are on wood, and I really like the record. I got a 12-inch from Will Cedars, and it was just because it his sit on the rolled brass ring, it's also taller, and that with the 12-inch, and the fact that my shoulder was giving me trouble, it was just it was too, much. too much banjo. Yeah. Um, and it was really resonant and, I mean, beautiful instrument. But I really loved the neck. So eventually he got me... Um, and 11 inch. Mm-hmm. And I am liking it. It's a short scale instrument. So <laughs> some of the things that I was talking about, about feeling sloppy on stage or the fact that my fingers are overshooting unless oh, I'm careful. Yeah. Because you're still adjusting. I'm really, I am still adjusting to, you know, and even in the concerts I've been doing recently, I have to use my eyes a little more than I want oh. to just because I'm just not used to the short scale. Yeah. But again, I feel like the short scale is also helping my shoulder issues of not having as far of a reach. I've just had to change all kinds of things as you do. Oh, that's a bummer. Um, in your in your playing, how you approach your playing. Right. So so beyond the maker and what type of banjo is there anything else that you're very partial to on it? Like I see, is that a Will Cedars bridge? I see that looks like a unique sort of bridge. It is. It's a Will Cedars bridge, and there's. They come with Renaissance heads, mm-hmm. and my old banjo had a fiber skin head, and I might end. Up, I wanted to give it a try and see what I thought. I might end up with a fiber skin head because I like it a little bit warmer. Okay. And the other thing that I discovered is that how it sounds to you playing it is really different than how it sounds out in oh, the world. Big time. Yeah. So, for example, the record I loved how it sounded to me, and it's not that it didn't sound good out in the world, but it was too uh, muted for performance. It didn't have the attack and the um, velocity, you know, of, of another yeah, banjo might. Sense. And so it wasn't a good performance banjo. And oddly enough, the day before I bought my record, um, they told me, you know, it was like someone bought the 12 inch yesterday. It turned out to be my bandmate. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so we ended up with so you got to check it practically out practically the same banjo. His is 12 inch, mine's 11 inch. I still have mine. I'm not, I might, I might move it along. We'll see. Just because uh-huh. I know I don't play lots of different instruments, I tend to stick with one. I think maybe also because you get settled into where your fingers land and all of that. Of course. That's a beautiful fingerboard, too. Is that striped ebony? I believe it's maybe? rosewood. Is it? Okay. Just really dark. I don't want to yeah. speak a little bit, but it's a walnut banjo. And 
Will Cedars just has incredible craftsmanship. I mean, yeah, it looks just wonderful. The and the neck is. I just keep calling it a very sexy neck. I just keep <laughs> touching it. I'm like, oh, excuse me, I'll be over here with my banjo, <laughs> just petting it. <laughs> yeah. <All> right. <laughs> well, good for being a new one. That's that's a good way to welcome it to your, you know, yeah, good, good graces and and whatnot. And uh, Jake Blunt has has one of his, and hmm. Allison DeGroote plays a couple of his. But Jake was telling me like it takes it takes some months for it to like really open up and for. Yeah. You know, to settle in, it's like having a new puppy or something like that. You know, <laughs> Got it's a, house, a little too gregarious. <laughs> yeah, That's and fine. then also, um, I think a lot of people would have medium strings on it, and I've, I'm still tweaking the strings. Mm-hmm. But again, playing for so many years and playing, you know, my my uh, my lead finger, my index finger on my right hand gets a workout, yeah. and so I need it to be easy and as responsive as possible. And I tend to go with lighter strings. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really frustrating is just noticing how different it is between being open, like in C or G tuning, and then capoed up. And I play a lot of tunes capoed up. And I still, it was like, the jury's out is if if I love what happens to it once it's clamped down a little bit. Yeah, sometimes they don't have the same character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... It's it's all very interesting, and it's the endless conundrum for banjo players. Like you said, they're endlessly uh, adaptable so <laughs> and customizable. Yeah, exactly. Great. Tell everyone where to find you and your music and how to go see a show, all that stuff. How do, how do they find you? I am the only Evie Layden on the internet, uh-huh. so you can do some experimental spellings, and it probably will direct you to me. <laughs> My website's evieladen.com. Um, it's it's my name on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Oh, oh. Although I haven't done any banjo on TikTok. That's all been on the body music side of things and the dance side. All right. Spotify, streaming services, and f- you know, for better or for worse. And those are all the things, right? Yeah. I th- just type, yeah, if type you need it my, in. You'll find need my it. PayPal or Venmo. You can just, you know, shoot it there, Evie Layden. It's all good. But uh <laughs> wonderful. But all my uh all my shows are up on, on the website and I really love getting out into different communities and playing and singing and getting people doing the same. Well we love having you around. So really nice to see you and to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's going to do it for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. You heard some song clips in this episode. They were Glory by the Evie Laden Band, Hell Amongst the Yearlings by Beverly Cotton featuring the Greengrass Cloggers, Banjo Picking Girl by the Stairwell Sisters, and Walkin' the Dog by the Cross Pulse Percussion Ensemble. Special thanks to today's Patreon supporter of the show. That's Ron Bellis. Head on over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself and that will get you invited to the vip lounge video meetups uh this month's meetup is march 26th at 1 p.m eastern time hope to see you all there uh email the show pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com and hope all of you have a great rest of your march and beginning of your spring and i will see you all next time <laughs>